So good morning once again, everybody. It's good to see you and good to see this new arrangement. It's just, Harry just keeps us on our toes. Next week when you, when you come in, the stage will be on that far side over there in the corner and then all the other chairs. It'll be a surprise where the tables are. We'll just kind of let you work that out. Just kidding, maybe. Well, uh, one more announcement I'll just throw in to add to what Harry was saying. We're going to have, you may have noticed in the email that went out, the class email that went out this week, we're going to have a Q&A time uh, next week as well as the following week if we have enough questions to uh, spill over into two weeks. But <clears throat> we've done this from time to time and uh, I found it helpful. Sometimes the text that we're working through in class maybe doesn't address it or our time in a big church doesn't address it, and there's some lingering issue that you have uh, with what you're reading in the Bible or something you've thought about you know, for years in the Bible or the Christian life that you would like maybe some clarification on or maybe a different way to think about it, hopefully from a biblical perspective. So if you've got questions about the Bible, about the Christian life, about the um, anything, you know, what's the best type of wood to use to build a cabinet, I could, I could probably help you more with the last one than the other, you know, the first two. Anyway, but would love to help you with that and uh, also spur my own thinking. So if you have a question, um, what do we do, Dave? Stand up and be loud. Or come up here beside me and don't be loud. Okay. So you should have received an email um, on Tuesday or Wednesday, somewhere in the middle of the week. And I think it's maybe repeated in our newsletter Friday. I'm not sure of that. Uh, there's a link in that where it describes Q&A. There's a link down there. Just click on that, and that will open up an email from you to him. Type in your question. Put your name so he knows who it came from. He might not be able to f figure out your name if, it, if your email is something weird. So we can guarantee that it'll be weird, but that's yeah, okay. But put your name too, if you want. You be anonymous, though, right? Yeah, I mean, if you want to put your name, you can. But at the same time, I'm okay if 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 you want to leave it anonymous. I probably will not read your name unless it lends itself to some humor, <laughs> and then you can count on it. So, <laughs> all right. So thank you. I hope I hope that you'll avail yourself of that opportunity because we'll devote our whole time to it next time, our, our whole lesson time. Well, I was on a plane this week and sat, I usually try to sit up front because that means I'm first off, and so as, front, as, as up front as I can afford. Too, too much up front is pretty crazy these days. But uh, anyway, so I, uh, and on the aisle, and there were two empty seats to my left for whoever had not come yet. And I was getting toward the end, and finally this couple gets on and starts working their way down the aisle coming toward me, and the man was just full of tattoos. I mean, just the whole deal, tattoo. And she had, I can't remember if it was pink hair or blue hair, but it was, it was just, it was very colorful. <laughs> and so they come and they sit right beside me. 
And I had, I had my phone out, and I was actually, because it was a very early flight, I didn't get to read my Bible at home. So I was sitting there on the plane just reading my daily reading plan just on the text on my phone. And he sits down and leans over and looks at what I'm writing, reading. And he said, uh, he said, hey, do you read that often? And I said, well, I like read it every day. And he said, that's awesome. He said, you're studying to show yourself approved. <laughs> and it, of course, immediately I thought, Wayne, you bozo. <laughs> it's amazing how we can, and I purposefully set you up for that, to realize God's got people everywhere. Tattooed people, blue-haired people, and people like you and me. We are all uh, following God and reading God's Word. He has people everywhere. And as I got to talking with them a little bit, um, they asked what I do, and I asked what, what they're doing, and they said that they were actually on their way to Tennessee for a conference that they were participating in, helping to lead, in which they are promoting unity in the body of Christ. I mean, they were pretty astute, biblically, as, as uh, I found out as we continued our conversation. And I happened to be reading something in Acts 26 uh, that morning, and it just jumped out at me. And so I leaned over and read to them uh, what Paul's words were in Acts 26 about how the gospel has the power to bring people from the power of Satan to the power of God. And uh, the, the lady said, that is a good word. She said, tell me what chapter that is, because we want, to, we want to read through that. But I just love that you can have fellowship with people who aren't like you. And it's helpful to get out of our little bubble, because there's nobody with green hair that I can see here. And you don't have to tell me, but there may be some tattoos in here as well. And you know what? That's okay. Because people uh, follow Christ from all different backgrounds and all different callings. And people minister to others that we could never touch and vice versa. But having fellowship with those who are unlike you. Our culture is changing. It's no longer where Christians are only identified as you know, wearing dresses and ties. Christians are everywhere. And God is working in all different places in the world, places that you never initially would have imagined and are ashamed when you discover, wow, you know, I guess we all are in need of Christ, not just me. Another thing that's really changing in our world is fast food. Fast food is changing, and it's beginning to drive me a little crazy because it's not just the fast food in the drive-thrus, which is an experience all on its own, but even when you go into fast food restaurants, what has started driving me nuts is when that little thing flips around and they say, now you need to fill out the rest of this. In other words, give me a tip. Give me a tip for, you know, the last 90 seconds of our conversation. And sometimes I guess I do. Sometimes I guess I don't. And it's just strange how our, our world is changing. Uh, I went online, and the reason I thought about this is because this morning when the usher in Big Church came to give me 
uh, the offering plate, I was on a row that had like hardly anybody in it. And so he comes and he puts the plate right in front of me. And I, I looked and I looked down the row and there was no one and I, and I didn't want to take it because there's no one to take it to. So I just kind of looked at him and he, and, he, and he just looked at me and goes, uh-huh. And I wanted to say, I give online. Do I really have to stand up and tell everybody, I give online? That's why I didn't put money in the offering plate. I give online. But the last time I give online, I fair expected to see the opportunity to add a tip on there. Because this is the way our culture is going. But seriously, fast food is uh, a thing of our culture. In fact, I was reading, uh, fast food is as old as the 50s, and it was invented in America, and it came from California. It came from California, and it's here in Texas, and it has, in all of our franchises, or at least the big ones, you will also find in other countries. So when I travel to other countries, I'll see it. I've seen it in Beijing. I've seen it in um, Israel. I mean, everywhere, Greece. There are our franchises all over the world. And it's funny when you have the icons for the various franchises like Ronald McDonald or um, uh, Colonel Sanders, they, they are all changed to fit the culture in which they're in. Like when I was in Beijing, Ronald McDonald uh, looked Chinese, <laughs> which is kind of neat. It's kind of neat. But um, we tend to... We have a very fast food mentality these days. Um, we've been spoiled, I think, with just, just this desire to have it immediately, whether it's a one click on Amazon or whether it's a simple drive through and we've got a hot meal without ever getting out of our car seat. We tend to bring that same expectation of entitlement into our spiritual life and to our churches. I actually saw a cartoon some years ago that talked about a fast food or a drive-through sermon where it had this line of cars around the church and the pastor was leaning out the, the window like a, like a, a fast food person and he was giving a, a sermon and, it, and the sign said, uh, sermon two minutes or less or, or, or it's free or something like that. And, you know, we chuckle at that until we realize that this is sort of our expectation, and truth be told, it's kind of our desire. Sometimes we would love for the sermon to be two minutes, and sometimes we wish it would go on another two hours. But it's just our culture, and it's what we have been accustomed to. We are accustomed to, I mean, it's like sacrilege to go past noon in most, most churches which is sort of crazy when you think about the fact that we've got different time zones all over the world, so noon is a relative thing, or basically keep the message like under an hour. 45 minutes is really best. I mean, Paul preached for 45 minutes, and so that's got to be good for us. Well, actually, I mean, there are some places in, in the body of Christ throughout, uh, throughout America where the sermons are like 10 minutes. I mean, it's really minimal. And there have been, throughout history, uh, even in America, where the sermons have been hours. And you, like, stand for hours to listen to a sermon. So it's just all what we've accustomed ourselves to.
Huh, well, how does this relate to baptism and the Lord's Supper? Yeah, Harry has given me this look like, get to it, come on. <laughs> well, maybe, maybe the, the relation is this. When we think of the Lord's Supper, it's not a fast food experience. The Lord's Supper is often, unfortunately, treated like a fast food experience in our churches. We do what we normally do every week, but when it's time to do communion, we just sort of stick it on to the end and hurry it up. And yet, when we look at the Bible and what it talks about, the significance of communion, the Lord's Supper, in our walk with God, it's anything but fast food. It is, it is a very significant experience, or it's supposed to be, in our lives. So we've, we've started, last week we talked about baptism, today we're talking about communion. These two actions are ordinances, and an ordinance is something that Jesus started for the church. He, uh, he only gave us two, that is baptism, it's done once at the beginning of your Christian life, and then the Lord's Supper or communion, which is done repeatedly throughout your Christian life. One focuses on a relationship, the other focuses on fellowship. Last time we talked about baptism and its significance and the origins of it and how it relates to us as our, in our walk with God. Today we're going to do the same thing about communion. And it isn't just this sense of um, a fast food tag-on to the end of a regular service. Now, even though we do that, I'm not saying that that, that minimizes it or... or um, makes it insignificant. I'm just saying that often in our mind, we just sort of make it a PS, like we're supposed to do it, so we'll just kind of cram it in here, when the reality is, whether it's short, whether it's long, whether we do it every quarter, whether we do it every week, or whether we do it whenever, it is whenever we do it, it is to be significant. Um, I don't know that I have ever, maybe I have, I just can't remember, uh, heard a specific lesson or teaching or message on communion. Sometimes you get such stuff on baptism because it's sort of linked with the altar call. But communion, what is it? What does the Bible say about it? Is it just a matter of coming and eating the bread and drinking the, the juice or the wine and going on? What should we do in our expectation of coming to it? So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I read about a small town church up in upstate New York where a priest had been serving in a parish for 35 years and had just retired. The new priest, young guy, came and was serving communion to the congregation, and their tradition was such that the priest actually gave the communion to each individual. You kind of line a queue up in the front, and he'd do it one at a time. And the people, he could tell, were visibly upset with him, and he didn't know why. And so he called one of the church leaders and said, you know, after communion last week, I noticed that people seemed upset with me. What's going on? And he said, yeah, they actually are upset with you. You don't do communion like our former priest did. He said, well, what is different about it? He said, well, our former priest, before he would serve communion, he would go over and he would touch the radiator. 
and then come and serve communion. And the priest goes, the radiator? So he, the young priest calls the old priest and says, I heard that you go over and you touch the radiator before serving communion. How is that part of the, you know, the ritual of communion? He says, oh, it's nothing to do with the ritual of communion, but I'd go over there and, and discharge the static electricity from me so that when I would serve communion, I wouldn't shock everybody. But the congregation never knew that. They thought that it, you know, this was part of the holy, the holy radiator, was part of, the, part of the ritual of communion. And touching the radiator had become such a part of their tradition that not to do it during communion felt wrong. Interesting, isn't it? True story. We seldom question the meaning of our traditions, and we often come to find satisfaction in the familiarity of what we do rather than in the meaning behind what we do. Jesus often locked horns with the Pharisees, remember, because he violated their traditions. And Jesus said, well, let's turn the tables, guys. Your, your traditions are violating God's word. The Apostle Paul wrote the book of 1 Corinthians to the church at Corinth, obviously, who were, you might call them, God's problem children. They had a lot of problems. And just a slight surface reading of 1 Corinthians will tell you. You've got their fascination with philosophy, their lawsuits between fellow Christians, immorality, incest, uh, abusing of spiritual gifts, abuse of power, divisions, cliques. I mean, 1 Corinthians reads like a, a fast food menu of things not to do in the body of Christ. And they're, even in their uh, expressing communion or celebrating communion together, Paul says you're doing it wrong. And so we get our greatest teaching on what communion is and what it should be here in 1 Corinthians 11 in a context of a church that was doing it wrong. And so Paul realigns them and says, here's what to do and here's why to do it, which is what gives us great insight about this act that we should be doing repeatedly and regularly throughout our Christian life. So look down at verse 17. He corrects how they take part in the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, Paul writes, But in giving this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in this place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and I in part believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So Paul says, when you come together and you leave, you're worse off than when you came. That is not a good congregation experience. You come to church, you should be better when you leave. You shouldn't be worse. Paul says you're, they were worse. And it says that it stems from a division that they're having with one another. In one respect, he says divisions are good because it sort of separates the wheat from the chaff. It's okay, in some sense, to have divisions. And when we think about it, this verse often is a good justification for the legitimacy, occasionally, for church splits. Sometimes churches will split over doctrinal issues, or you'll, you'll, you'll read about, like in recent news, 
where churches will say, we don't go for that doctrine. That doctrine is wrong, and part of the people in the church will leave as a result of that. So there is a healthy part of division, Paul says, but there is also a very unhealthy part of division, and that's what he's addressing uh, with regard to how they took took part in communion. Look at verse 20. He continues, Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? In this I will not praise you. The Lord's Supper, it's referred to here, but uh, we've also got a couple of other names for it. In the, the book of Acts, sometimes it's referred to as breaking bread. Sometimes we refer to it as communion. And this class is so well educated to know what the original word for communion is. Good grief, yes. But, you know, actually, that's not right, Joseph. Oh, for Eucharist, it is. But for communion, it's our word for small groups. Koinonia. That's all right. Pretty close. You get, you get some points for just saying a Greek word. That's fantastic. But Joseph's also right. When it's referred to as the Eucharist, it's from the Greek word Eucharistao, which is the lexical form. I'm actually impressed that you said that. And uh, we don't often call it the Eucharist in our circles, but it, it is referred to that in other circles. And it means to give thanks. Eucharistao, the idea of giving thanks, and this is what, um, what we're to do. But uh, in the early church, they would have, in addition to what we often think of as the Lord's Supper, they would also have what they call an agape meal. We, we, we could think of it as a potluck. They would come together, they'd have like a potluck meal, and then after that, they would have communion, or the Lord's Supper, that they would observe together. And so we're going to have communion here today, but we're not going to have a potluck. We'll just be doing the, what we normally do with regard to it. But sometimes this agape meal was called a love feast. Now, when we think about love feast, it sounds like something out of the 60s, doesn't it? <laughs> love feast. No, this is a, a, the agape meal. Is, uh, it was just a, a time of fellowship. It was just a time to get together and to to enjoy the fellowship of one another. But Paul says, when you do this, you're abusing it because the people who show up early are basically eating all the food. Now, we see this sometimes in potlucks, don't we? One one thing that drives me nuts is when the people in the front of the line in potlucks load up their plate and the people at the end, there's nothing left for them but the green bean casserole. Paul says, it's not right for some to be drunk, in other words, to have way too much, and others to go hungry. So this this agape meal, which was intended to encourage one another, actually served to divide them. What was intended to bring them together actually drove them apart. And Paul said there in verse 17, their meetings did more harm than good. So then, then after dinner, they would observe the Lord's Supper proper, which was basically what we do with just the bread and the wine, or the bread and the juice. And Paul's point is this, how can you take the Lord's Supper after acting like you do with regard to that meal? 
and he brings us back to the very basics. Look at verse 23. Paul says, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So Paul says, that which I also delivered to you. In other words, he's told them about this before. So he's reminding them of what he's already told them. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, on the night just prior to his crucifixion, Jesus takes bread. And we're told that um, on the night in which he took bread, when he had given thanks, there's our word, eucharistao, when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said this is my body. This broken bread is my body. What do you mean by that? First of all, we see three things in, this, in these verses, or at least three things. The first is Jesus says, this is my body. Did, he, did Christ mean that, that somehow his body is actually transferred to this bread, that the bread actually becomes the body of Christ? Um, it's more likely that Jesus is referring to the bread as an illustration of his body. Similar to like what he said in John 10, where he says, I am the gate. Jesus didn't mean he was a gate. He's using the gate as a metaphor for him. Jesus didn't mean that the bread was his body, but that it represented his body. And he doesn't mean, therefore, that, the, that we take the very body and blood of Christ, nor because that would imply, it would more than imply, it would say that we are re-sacrificing the Lord Jesus again and again and again and again. When Peter clearly tells us in 1 Peter 3.18, Christ died for sins once for all. Once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. The book of Hebrews also is replete with examples. It's that there's no more need for any more sacrifices because Christ's single act alone was sufficient. So this is my body. This represents my body. And the second thing Christ says is, which is for you. Which is for you. Christ's death on the cross provides us something that we could never get any other way, and that's forgiveness of sins. There's no other way to get it except through his broken body and his spilled blood. This is for you, forgiveness of sins. You can go to church, you can take communion, you can be baptized, you can serve, you can give thousands of dollars, and when you die, you can still be condemned because all the good things that you do in your life still have not dealt with your sins or my sins. It's our sins that separate us from God. All the good works in the world can't erase what we've done. The only thing that can take away our sins is for our sins to be paid for. Sin has to be paid for. There must be justice in the mind of God. God's not simply just going to wink and sort of overlook it. It has to be dealt with either in your life and my life or in the substitute in someone else's life, in Christ's life and death in our place. 
And of course, that's exactly what Jesus is saying. This is my body. This is my broken body, my spilled blood for you. In your place, Jesus says, I have died. And the third thing Jesus says here is, do this. I guess we could say there's four things. The third thing would be, do this. Do what? Eat and drink. To consume it. To eat and drink. You remember in Leviticus, when we were in Leviticus, we talked about the fact that the fellowship offerings were offerings that not only the priests ate, which represented God accepting it, but also that the people would eat. And that represented fellowship, which is why it's called a fellowship offering. That when you ate with God, you were basically saying, having a meal with God, you're basically saying we're in fellowship with one another. Communion has the same idea, that when we take and eat that which represents the body of Christ, we are eating that which represents our sacrifice, just like in the Old Testament with Leviticus. They would eat that which represented the sacrifice. It literally was the sacrifice in the Old Testament. But Jesus is saying, you're familiar with the Old Testament. Now transfer that to me. I am the Passover lamb. I am the sacrifice. I am the burnt offering, the fellowship offering, the libation. I mean, I'm every, all of those sacrifices now uh, fulfilled in one person. Do this, eat and drink, in remembrance of me. So the act is a memorial of what was done. It is not an experience of it being done. It is in remembrance of Christ. Because God made us, he knows that we have a tendency to forget. And so he established in the Old Testament these holidays, which we looked at in Leviticus. Every three times a year, they would experience these holidays that brought them back to the basics. Similarly, in our Christian life, we have communion on a regular basis so that we will have this regular reminder. Communion forces us to think about the death and resurrection of Christ on our behalf. Otherwise, we might not think about it. Thankfully, we have Easter every year that gives us that reminder, but also communion is intended to do the same thing, but on a much deeper level, much more personal level. You may remember in the Old Testament, don't turn there, but I'll just read to you from Exodus chapter 13, um, verse 8 and 9. When a father of the household would dedicate the firstborn of a flock to the Lord, it was the custom for the son to say, what does this mean? And Exodus 13, 8 and 9, this is what the father says. And you shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt, and it shall serve as a sign to you on your hand and as a reminder on your forehead that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth, for with a powerful hand the Lord brought you out of Egypt. So again, in the Old Testament, God set it up to, as a reminder. In the New Testament, Christ set it up Communion as a reminder, do this in remembrance of me. That helps us not forget. All right, let's continue. Verse 25, we're told, In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Paul writes here, in the same way he took the cup also after supper, implying that the bread was also taken after supper. What supper is that? 
the, the Lord's Supper, okay? Think about the original context in which Jesus said these words. Passover, right, Passover. Remember, they were in the upper room. They were experiencing Passover meal, and it was in the middle of that meal after supper that Jesus took the cup. So the cup after supper, there were actually four cups that were part of the Passover meal, and the one after supper was the third cup, and it's called the Cup of Salvation. I want to recommend a book to you. I don't know if you have this, but it's called Yeshua, The Life of Messiah from a Messianic Jewish Perspective by Arnold, big old long name, Fruchtenbaum. Arnold Fruchtenbaum. But uh, this guy is a Dallas Seminary grad, and he, this is actually one of four volumes. I didn't want to bring all four because I'm only going to read from this one. But listen to what Arnold says about this, uh, first of all, about the bread, which, of course, the bread was not just any old bread. It was matzah bread. It was unleavened bread that they had there. But I want to read a couple of excerpts from this because it's going to give us a little bit of insight deeper than our, just our simple Christian reading through the Christian lens of Jesus' experience. You're going to have to put on now your, your Jewish mindset. He writes this, By Jewish law, the Passover bread must meet three requirements. It must be unleavened, striped, and pierced, so that when held up against a candle or a lamp, the light can be seen through the holes. The holes are poked into the bread in rows so that when it's baked, it comes out striped. The rabbinic reason for the striping and piercing was to impede leavening. However, Yeshua, he calls Yeshua Jesus, identified his, Jesus Yeshua, Yeshua identified his body specifically with the Passover matzah. And he took bread when he'd given that, he quotes the verse. And he says, it's important to remember that when Yeshua said, this is my body, he specifically referred to the Jewish Passover bread, to no other bread. The Passover bread is a fitting symbol of his body for three reasons. First, it is unleavened. Leaven is the symbol of sin, and since Yeshua was the only Jew who ever kept the Mosaic law perfectly, down to every jot and tittle, his body was unleavened or sinless. If he had committed even one sin, it would have disqualified him from being the Passover sacrifice. Second, the matzah bread has to be striped. The body of Yeshua was also striped by the way the Roman whip, uh, the Roman whip during the time of his scourging. Third, the bread has to be pierced, and the body of Yeshua was pierced twice by the nails at crucifixion and by the spear thrust into his side. Then a little farther on, he talks about the drink. This is the, the cup after supper. The Seder guests enjoy the main course, which consists of the roast lamb, unleavened bread, bitter herbs. The second part of the ceremony occurs with the unwrapping, breaking, and distribution of the hidden matzah. There's a whole uh, uh, ceremony that goes on with part of the matzah that's broken and hidden. And then you bring out the hidden matzah that had been buried, as it were, and you bring it out and it's no longer buried. Um, In Judaism, the cup symbolizes the blood of the lamb that saves the the Jewish firstborns from the last plague. Yeshua identified his blood with the cup, and Luke made made that clear when he specified, and, and the cup in like manner after supper. The cup of redemption comes after the meal. The third cup, which reminds the Seder guests of the shed blood of the innocent lamb that brought the physical redemption from Egypt, now becomes the symbol of the blood of the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. 
So this would have been in the mind of the disciples, and probably in hindsight, they made the connection a whole lot better than they did uh, there. But we can also make that connection. Jesus says that his blood would begin the new covenant. This is the blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is freighted with implications, meaning that the new covenant began at the cross, at the time of Christ's blood, which really helps us when we, when we read the Gospels. A lot of times, we'll read the Gospels from a New Testament mindset. In fact, before Matthew, you probably have a flyleaf that says New Testament. And it is the New Testament in the sense of writing. But when we think of Testament as covenant, new, Old Covenant, Old Testament, New Testament, New Covenant, then all of a sudden we need to think of the Gospels in a completely different way. When you read the Gospels, think Old Testament, because it was until the cross. The cross was the time where things pivoted in the dispensation, you might say, from the old to the new. And we know that because Jesus says that the new covenant was in his blood at the cross. So, it, it, it was a game changer for me when I learned that, and hopefully that'll also help you in your interpretation and reading of the Gospels, that you don't just read the Gospels and think church. Don't think church unless Jesus is talking about the church. Think Old Testament, because the Gospels very much were an Old Testament context. Jesus also said here, do this as often as you will, which gives us a whole lot of leniency. How often do we observe communion here at this church? Is quarterly? Is it quarterly? I've never been able to figure out the pattern. Uh, I always just sort of walk in and go, oh, there's the, <laughs> there's the uh, elements up front, and so today we're doing it. I never really know. I, I, I kind of wish I did. Even a, a, an announcement ahead of time would be great just to sort of prep my heart and mind. Because I... What, what, is it every other month? Well, what, whatever. We're not here to criticize. But if you're listening, let's go ahead and announce it so that we'll all know what to do. But seriously, whenever you do it, Jesus says. Uh, I grew up in a church that did it every quarter, pretty religiously. But that was so seldom, I actually forgot about it until it came around. I also went to a church uh, later on in my growing up years that did it every week. And while that had some benefit to it, it also sort of became ho-hum. You know, it was just sort of, okay, now it's time to do communion. So I don't know what the perfect balance is, and obviously we're all going to land in different places. But Jesus said, as often as you will. So there is great flexibility there. But he says, basically, not here's how often you should do it, but when you do it, do it in remembrance of me. The goal is to do it in remembrance of Jesus Christ. Uh, Sarah Edwards, the wife of the great Puritan, just the brilliant Jonathan Edwards uh, of yesteryear, uh, Sarah would spend literally days before communion in spiritual preparation. She would engage in fasting and prayer and self-examination, basically seeking a humble heart so that she would take part in communion in a prepared way. And I have appreciated uh, Sarah's example and also I've really appreciated when I do know when communion is happening, because I tend to have a more holy week, knowing and, and because I will be sitting before the Lord in a very real way, um, 
not that we shouldn't have unholy weeks, but that uh, knowing that communion is coming really does make a difference sometimes in the preparation for it. So there are three applications or three observations that we can make for communion that, that go to our lives. And here, here they are. The first one is this. Communion requires us to look backward at Jesus' death for our sins. Communion requires us to look backward at Jesus' death for our sins. We are to remember his death on our behalf. We do this in remembrance of him. Verse 26, Paul gives us another bit of insight. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So see, it points backwards. You proclaim the Lord's death. We look back at his death. But also we're told that we look forward to his coming that we do it until he comes. There is an expectation of his coming. So the Lord's Supper, we look backward and we look forward. We look backward at his death. We look forward at his coming, to his coming. And, of course, to his, uh, to his ruling. We are remembering it. Verse 27, he continues, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord In an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself. And let me pause there and say that the word here for man is the original word anthropos, which means human. It means male or female. So our translators have just said man, but it means man or woman, anybody. But a person might be a better translation. A person must examine himself or herself, and in so doing, He is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. What does this mean? Well, the context, obviously, as we've talked about the divisions that were there in the Corinthian church, that to eat and drink in an unworthy manner, or as Paul phrases it, to be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord, is to eat and drink without this self-examination that he talks about. That we must, a man or a woman, must examine himself. And there are three imperatives here, or three commands in the original language. Examine, eat, drink. Those are all commands in the original language. And that basically means they're not options. Just as we talked about last time, that baptism doesn't make you saved, but it does make you obedient. You can be saved and not be baptized. You cannot be obedient and not be baptized because it was a command. It is a command. Same with communion. Communion is not an option for us as believers. And in communion, there's also the need to examine ourselves. It is not an option. Communion is designed by God to come into our lives on a regular basis to to force us to do self-examination where we might not otherwise do it. It's so easy to just sort of let stuff go. But with communion, you have a moment where there is self-examination. And this is tough because how how do you examine yourself? How do you know if there's anything between you and the Lord? Um... Take a moment and flip to, keep your place here and flip to 1 John chapter 1. Please turn. I'd love everyone to actually see these verses. 
1 John chapter 1. I'll be honest, sometimes there are times in my Christian life where I wonder if I'm right with God in my walk. Maybe it's the way you grew up. Maybe it's just someone else uh, imposing guilt on you. Maybe it's your own conscience that's just hypersensitive to where you wonder, something just doesn't feel right in my heart, and you can't put your finger on it. 1 John chapter 1 gives us the freedom from that nagging feeling. Look at um, chapter 1, verse 6. Start at verse 6. John writes, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all truth. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John's saying a lot here, and it sort of feels like tongue twisters at times to read 1 John, but he's basically saying, um, if we think we're walking with God and yet we know we have sin in our life, we're kidding, we're kidding ourselves. But if we confess that sin in our lives, then we are told in verse 9 that he is faithful and righteous to forgive us. So let's pause there for just a second. Look at verse 9. This is the wonderful freedom for the nagging guilty conscience. If we confess our sins, this means the sins you know, that you're aware of. You can't confess what you don't know. Confess what you know. And we're told if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins. Okay, that's great. And look at this wonderful addition to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When we confess what we know, he is faithful not just to forgive us of what we know, but to forgive us of everything that we don't know, all unrighteousness. So if you've got the nagging guilt that's been going on for years, is there anything you can put your finger on that relates to that? If there is, just confess it. And honestly, if you're like me, you got to confess it a lot, over and over and over, because it's not a one-and-done thing. We tend to fall and fail and struggle in the same areas. But if, if after confessing you've still got this nagging guilt that goes on for years, remember that Jesus forgives you of all unrighteousness. And this is a, a forgiveness of fellowship, not a forgiveness of salvation. If you place your faith in Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. The sins we're talking about here are fellowship sins. Communion is about fellowship. And that's what koinonia means. It's our fellowship with God. Baptism took care of the heaven and hell issue. That's done. It's done once. But fellowship is done repeatedly. Communion is done repeatedly because we, we repeatedly fail the Lord. And we repeatedly have to come back to him on a regular basis. And 1 John 1.9 tells us if we'll simply confess what we know, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us even of what we don't know. 
It may take your emotions a while to catch up with that, but if you'll meditate on that truth, it is true. And anything that enters your mind other than that truth is from the pit of hell. Go with the word of God, not with your emotions, not with the the guilt that's laid on you by someone else. Go with scripture and allow the scripture to renew your mind. So, communion requires us to look backward at his death, look forward at his coming, and inward. Backward, forward, and finally, inward. That's that self-examination at our present walk with him. Backward, forward, and inward. So we want to enjoy a time of communion here today. And so the ushers that have been designated to do so, would you mind getting up and Come on and on up. Is it up here? Yep. Go ahead and get them, and let's go ahead and distribute both uh, the juice and the bread at the same time. We're not going to separate it. Just do it at the same time. And in this time of distribution, we're going to have some lovely background music that will help with uh, just the silence, but also give you an opportunity, as Paul says, to take a moment for us to... um, just do some self-examination with the wonderful free, freeing verse of 1 John 1, 9, and then we will take uh, enjoy communion together in a few minutes.
So the Apostle Paul said, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Our Father, as the... um, the taste lingers in our mouth. There is this wonderful sense of the, the lingering gratitude of what it represents. As Jesus said, we do this in memory of him, in remembrance of what he's done for us, for his body, for his blood on, on the cross of Calvary. And also we do it in expectation of his coming again, that he is not in the grave He has risen. He has ascended. He is promised to return. And so we do this until he comes. And we also do this with an inward look, not just backward and forward, but inward as we examine our own fellowship and walk with you. Thank you for the beautiful promise of your word that we don't have to wonder if we are in fellowship, but we can know. That simple confession brings about immediate restoration of fellowship. And we're able to do this uh, a thousand times a day if we need to, to walk closely with you. Thank you for this ordinance, for these ordinances of baptism and communion, as we have enjoyed just a, a deeper dive into each of these and how they interact with our walk with Christ. And for the rest of our lives, Lord, may we have a deeper significance and understanding and appreciation, of course, of communion as we partake um, throughout the years to come. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, we're a little over, um, and that's because we are. So I know that's anathema, but that's just the way it goes. But I didn't want to just rush out if anybody has any questions. We'll just maybe do a couple minutes if anybody has a question about either baptism or communion that we haven't addressed and that you want to ask. So is there? Just raise your hand and we'll bring you a mic. Okay. Fantastic. Is that, is that a question or a, a request? Yes. Yeah, I'm very good. A lot of people don't wait for the microphone. <laughs> um, so, do you have to be baptized in order to take communion if you know the Lord? There's nothing in Scripture that gives us that uh, one-two step, except that the, the pattern that we see in the Bible is that someone is usually baptized immediately. So, there's not a, a long wait between faith and baptism. It's, it's immediate. 
So ideally, yes, you'd be baptized first, but that's only because that's what you do right after you trust Christ. But no, there is nothing in the scripture that says you've got to be baptized before you take communion. So not all circles believe that, but there's nothing in the Bible that designates that. So great, great question. All right, anybody else? Fantastic. All right, Harry, come on up and bless us out. Thank you, Wayne. I think we've been blessed. Um, Connie's over here if you want to get tickets for the movie. Until then, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.